0: Before we get to the argument of book one and the discussion about justice, I'd like to spend some time looking rather closely at the opening scene of the Republic. In the Bloom translation, the opening scene is the first page and a half In the Stephanus numbers, those little numbers that appear in the margins. The opening scene begins at the beginning, 327A, it ends with a list of names at 328B, a very short selection. But it's very carefully written to set the scene for the dialogue as a whole, and it will reward our close attention. In fact, we should think of this opening scene as something like the proem, the opening verses of an epic poem. Let's recall the proem to Homer's uh, Iliad. Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son Achilles, and its devastation, which put pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans. Hurled in their multitudes to the house of Hades, strong souls of heroes, but gave their bodies to be the delicate feasting of dogs, of all birds, and the will of Zeus was accomplished since that day when first there stood in division of conflict, Atreus' son, the lord of men, and brilliant or godlike Achilles. Both the story and the theme of the poem are announced by Homer here as he calls upon the muse to aid him in singing the rage of Achilles. The poem to the Odyssey, which is quite a bit longer, performs a similar function. Indeed, not only the opening lines of each epic poem, but even the opening word of each poem is highly significant. Here in the Iliad, the opening word is rage or anger, manus. The rage of Achilles, is not just the trigger that sets events in motion in the poem. It is that, but it's also more. The whole poem may be said to be Homer's or the Muses' way of tracing the contours and consequences of the rage of Achilles. You could even say that Homer is inquiring into the rage of Achilles throughout the poem and ultimately exploring the nature and causes of that rage, which is not just the offense of his honor in the opening scene, or the loss of his friend Patroclus later, but his rage at his own condition, his mortality, his struggle to come to terms with the nature of the world and the gods and himself. Similarly, the opening word of the Odyssey is man, Andra, the polutropus man, the man of many ways or many turns, the twisty-turny, topsy-turvy, wandering man that is Odysseus. Tell me, Muse, about the man of many turns, who many ways wandered when he had sacked Troy's holy citadel. The Odyssey as a whole may be read as Homer's, or Odysseus's, exploration of what man is, as Odysseus in his travels considers the various ways of monstrously falling short or divinely rising above the properly human condition, finally rejecting all of them and choosing to return to the properly human condition, to his wife and son and father and kingdom back in rocky Ithaca. Just as Homer writes his proems carefully to anticipate the plot and themes of his poems and even places the most important word as the first in his poem, so too Plato writes his opening scene carefully and places a very important word first. That word, however, is not what you might expect. It's not justice, even though justice is the theme of the dialogue and the question of the dialogue is whether or why one should lead a just life. It's not the title of the dialogue itself, politeia or regime either. It's not philosophy or some other word of obvious importance to Plato and Socrates. It is instead a verb a first person verb spoken by Socrates, who is not only the main character of this dialogue, but also is its narrator. The first word of the Republic is Katabane, which means I went down. I went down to the Piraeus yesterday with Glaucon, son of Ariston, to pray to the goddess. The dialogue begins with Socrates recounting that he descended, that he came down from the heights. In an immediate and literal sense, he's describing how he walked downhill from the heights of Athens down to the port of Piraeus, from the elevation of the city down to the sea level of the port. But in a less obvious sense, Plato is evoking two meaningful references. One which you and all of Plato's readers should already know, and the other which we will only be able to recognize once we have read further in the Republic itself. The first reference is to an event that happens in book 11 of Homer's Odyssey, when Odysseus performs a katabasis, a descent to the entrance uh, to Hades, and further performs a nekia, a ritual sacrifice of a ram and a ewe to summon the shades of the dead so that he may converse with them. The katabasis, the descent to the underworld, is a heroic feat. Odysseus himself makes the descent at the advice of Circe, to seek out the shade of the blind seer Tiresias, who explains to him the anger of Poseidon, warns him against eating the cattle of the sun god Helios, and provides him with other pieces of advice and prophecy. Odysseus also encounters a number of other shades, including Agamemnon, Achilles, and his own mother, among many others. Later, in book 23 of the Odyssey, Odysseus recounts his journey to the underworld to Penelope, telling her about the day when I went down into the house of Hades, seeking a return for my companions and myself. This passage is the most direct Homeric echo of the opening word of the Republic, just as Odysseus tells Penelope, I went down to the house of Hades. Socrates says at the beginning of the Republic, I went down to the Piraeus yesterday. It's worth noting that just as Odysseus is a storyteller, in the central books of the Odyssey, and then at the end, uh, storyteller to Penelope, to Penelope, so too Socrates here in the Republic is a storyteller, telling someone, his audience is never specified, about his journey down to the Piraeus. So Odysseus made his descent to the underworld in search of wisdom, or more precisely, in search of practical advice on how to live, and he lived to tell the tale. This first association suggests that Socrates, too, is a hero, worthy of being compared to Odysseus, performing the heroic feat of a descent, a katabasis, perhaps doing so in search of knowledge. Except, in Socrates' case, it is a descent from Athens to Piraeus, not from the world of the living to the threshold of the world of the dead. Still, we should keep the specific Homeric reference in mind. And we'll have to wait until the very middle of the Republic— until the beginning of book seven of the Republic to discuss the second association that Plato is making here with Katabasis, katabane, I went down. So much for the first word of the Republic. Why then did Socrates descend to the Piraeus? Let's look at the first paragraph. I went down to the Piraeus yesterday with Glaucon, son of Ariston, to pray to the goddess. And at the same time, I wanted to observe how they would put on the festival since they were now holding it for the first time. Now, in my opinion, the procession of the native inhabitants was fine, but the one the Thracians conducted was no less fitting a show. After we had prayed and looked on, we went off toward town. There are a few things to note here. First, Socrates is hanging out with Glaucon by choice, which will soon become important. Together they go down to the praeus for at least two reasons. To pray to the goddess and to observe the manner in which the festival is celebrated. Because it turns out that this is a new religious festival being held at Athens for the first time. The goddess here is not specified, but we learn at the end of Book 1 that it is Bendis, a Thracian moon goddess. Socrates, in other words, is an observer in two senses of the word. First. He's observing the religion of his city, performing his religious duties by going to pray to the goddess who is now being introduced to Athens. And secondly, he is observing in a theoretical sense, beholding or seeing, satisfying his philosophical curiosity. Moreover, he passes judgment, and in so doing, he shows his ability to be an impartial judge. He compares the pre- procession of the Athenians to that of the Thracians, concluding that the one, the Athenians, was fine. That could also mean beautiful, so it's not fine as in, it? uh, it's just fine, but it could actually be a, a, a real term of approval, it's fine. But the other, the Thracians, was no less fitting. Socrates does not allow his Athenianness to create a bias in him against the foreigner. So from the opening paragraph, we've learned a few things about Socrates and a few things about Athens. Socrates, who is accused by Aristophanes in the clouds of arguing against the traditional Greek religion and introducing new scientific gods into the city in the form of the clouds, here appears as a good citizen of Athens and a pious one at that. Plato suggests that Socrates can be both a good citizen of Athens, observing its religious customs and requirements, and be a philosopher. He goes down to Piraeus to pray to the goddess and to satisfy his curiosity or his desire for knowledge. As for Athens, first we are reminded of the existence of its port, Piraeus, which is so significant for its history as an imperial power, because Piraeus is the seat of its navy, and for its later history of civil war, because Piraeus is the home of the democratic faction in Athens. But there is a distinction between Athens and Piraeus, between the town or the city proper and its port, which enables it to be an empire. Is it good for Athens to have a Piraeus? Is it possible for Athens to be Athens without Piraeus? Perhaps there are better ways of arranging a city than Athens and Piraeus. Secondly, we are here reminded of the dynamic, innovative character of the Athenian people, about which we've read much from Herodotus, especially Thucydides, The Athenians are innovators. They are even innovators in their religious practices, as this festival is being imported from abroad and celebrated for the first time. Now we get to the really exciting part, the drama of the opening scene. Scholars refer to the next few paragraphs as the arrest of Socrates. Socrates is placed under arrest. While Socrates and Glaucon are intending to return home to Athens, a young man, Polemarchus, sees them and sends his slave boy to order them to wait for him. The slave boy actually grabs Socrates' cloak and announces, Polemarchus orders you to wait. What follows is a playful exchange, but its serious undertones become clearer as we proceed in book one and, like the opening word, I went down, this exchange becomes even more significant as we move through the dialogue as a whole. Here's what happens. Polemarchus arrives with a few other men, including Glaucon's brother, Adamantus. Polemarchus playfully threatens Socrates by the force of their numbers to remain in the Piraeus rather than return to Athens, saying that Socrates and Glaucon must either prove stronger than these men or stay here. Polemarchus, whose name means war leader and who seems to be a vigorous, spirited young man, playfully suggests that the weak must obey the strong, that this is just a matter of fact. Here, we should recall the Athenian motto in the Amelian dialogue, that the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. Socrates suggests another possibility, the possibility of persuasion. He suggests, in other words, that persuasive speech, rhetoric or reason put in persuasive terms might be able to counteract brute force. This would mean that those who know how to speak persuasively could direct the strong, and in a certain sense prove stronger than the physically strong. Extrapolating further, Socrates raises the possibility that some intellectual power, some force of the mind, perhaps the mind of the philosopher himself, could prove superior to the physical force of the strong, the warriors of the world. Polemarchus's reply is quite simple. Could you really persuade if we don't listen? Glaucon gives the undeniable answer. There's no way. If reason or persuasion is to rule over the strong, it seems that the strong will have to willingly obey the wise. So we've reached an impasse in this playful yet serious exchange between Socrates and Glaucon on the one hand, the philosopher and his follower or friend. And Polemarchus and his crew, on the other hand, the war leader of a band of young, strong men. Socrates and Glaucon want to ascend to Athens. Polemarchus and his boys want them to stay in the Piraeus. Socrates has been arrested and is now at the mercy of the strong young men who joke with him that they will refuse to listen to his persuasive arguments. Then... Adamantus, the brother of Glaucon, and by the way, also brother of Plato, breaks the impasse. And he does so by using persuasion on Socrates, the philosopher. He entices Socrates with a novel spectacle. He says, at sunset, there will be a torch race on horseback for the goddess. He catches Socrates' attention. And after clarifying to Socrates that, yes, he means that there's going to be a kind of nighttime horseback relay races with torches to honor the goddess, Adamantus adds the proverbial cherry on top. Quote, besides, they'll put on an all-night festival that will be worth seeing. We'll get up after dinner and go see it. There, that is to say at dinner, we'll be together with many of the young men and we'll talk. So stay and do as I tell you. Adamantus knows who Socrates is and how Socrates likes to spend his time. It's not the dinner itself, and probably not the horseback torch relay race either, that interests Socrates. It's the prospect of talking with a group of young men. That, after all, is what Socrates does, what he chooses to do. He has chosen to spend his time with Glaucon, and we see him, in other dialogues, choosing to spend his time with other young men, leading them toward the philosophic life. Adamantus knows his audience. He knows how to break the impasse, converting Socrates' reluctance into a willingness, or a half-willingness. Does Socrates choose to stay in the Piraeus, or is he forced? Or is it a combination of the two? Even with Adamantus' dose of persuasion, the arrest of Socrates ends with what Socrates calls a resolution. Glaucon has conceded that they must stay. And Socrates uses a phrase from Athenian politics. He says, it is so resolved, which is what you'd say when the Athenian assembly has voted on something. Socrates has escaped the forceful rule of the young men, Polemarchus and his boys. But he must obey the decisions, the resolutions of the city. The question is, what difference, if any, is there between these? What difference is there between a group of young men willing to use force to get their way and able to refuse to listen to the persuasive speech of their elders and wisers and a city? Is a city more apt to listen to reason, to persuasion, to the likes of Socrates than Polemarchus and his friends? What ultimately is the relation between reason and force? What power can reason have in this world and in the city? With the opening scene of the Republic, Plato has set up one of the key questions of the dialogue as a whole.